thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's edition of God, Law, and Liberty. Delighted to have you with me today, and we're going to continue to look at the opinion that leaked out last week from the United States Supreme Court, written by Justice Alito, to better understand the nature of the problems that are ahead of us if we want to build rightly our lives, our teaching of our children, and our law, our politics, and our governmental policies. There are several things about the court's opinion that need to be appreciated. I've said to people over and over and over that if we don't read the opinion and think through the opinion, then we won't really know where things are headed. Now, let me, let me just clarify this for those of you who are non-lawyers. The only power a court has, state or federal, but particularly under the federal constitution, there's um, a constitutional provision that says the court can only hear cases or controversies, but the the nature of the judicial power is to enter a judgment that resolves a dispute between the parties in a lawsuit. In other words, they can't make law. So the draft opinion released by, um, or leaked, I should say, says that the holding is the law in Mississippi prohibiting abortions by doctors after 15 weeks is enforceable. And the holding is the decisions and the holdings in Roe and Casey are reversed. The reason the court opinions are important is because they're, in essence, sort of the commentary. If you were Jewish, you might say it's sort of like the Talmud that helps explain uh, the Pentateuch or something. It, it helps you know what the court was thinking when it decided its judgment that the Mississippi law was enforceable and Roe and Casey should be reversed. That's the value of opinion. So when you don't read the opinion, you don't appreciate the worldview that led to the holding. And you're liable to look at the holding and rejoice, yay, Roe and Casey are reversed, but not appreciate the worldview that led to that. And what that then means for the pro-life community, for the Christian community going forward, what we need to do or not do. So I want to look at that today to help us understand what issues in our culture we need to address, what issues in our culture we need to inculcate in our children a, a proper understanding, um, that we need to inculcate in our legislators and our politicians and our judges to move the ball forward, okay, to make any progress. Now, for those who have not listened to the uh, initial episode from a couple of weeks ago, You'll recall that I, I noted that Abraham Kuyper said in 1898 to the seminary students at Princeton that Protestantism wanders along in the wilderness going hither and thither and making no progress whatsoever. So I'm assuming we want to make progress. Even if we think we're going to be raptured out of here next week, let's at least make some progress between today and next week, okay? So, so let's just start there. Now, here's what the court said in the opinion, and it's, and it's very telling. The court said this. This is sort of the key paragraph, I guess you could say. They end the opinion this way. We end this opinion where we began. Abortion presents a profound moral question. 
We like that idea, right? Yay, they recognize this is a profound moral question. But then listen to what they next say. The Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. That's why they reverse Roe and Casey. Now, what's missing there? What you don't hear there is that the profound moral question is really, what does it mean to be a human being and a person under the language of the 14th Amendment? If you're not familiar with the language, it says no state shall have a law prohibits any person from being deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So the 14th Amendment applies to persons, okay? And the question in front of the court really was this sense of, does the word liberty in the 14th Amendment give the person of the woman, the pregnant woman, the liberty to kill her unborn child without having the state interfere in it? Now, abortion is obviously a regulation of a medical practice, but it's more than that. The reason we regulate medical practices is because we have a fundamental right not put in the Constitution, transcending the Constitution, to personal security. That was one of the three fundamental rights at common law, to personal security, liberty, and property. Now, in the 14th Amendment, you see the word life, liberty, and property, right? Well, personal security was broader than life, although life was, in essence, the fundamental aspect of the fundamental right to personal security. Personal security was the right to one's life, limbs, health, body, and reputation. It was the whole of the person that was protected by personal security, of which a part of the whole of the person is the person's life, okay? So what the court was saying here is that we're looking at medical procedures that states can regulate, ignoring the fundamental question of who is a person. So what has happened here is that we still don't know what a person is. That's really the fundamental question to determine what the court calls the fundamental moral question of abortion. In other words, if, if what the procedure applies to is not a human being, is not a person, then there is no morality to it, no moral issue to it, other than it be done safely for the sake of the patient and securing the patient's fundamental right to their life, limbs, body, health, and reputation. You see what I'm saying here? In other words, the court is leaving completely out of the question that it's trying to address who is a person why do persons even have a right to liberty? Well, you have to define a person to then kind of understand what the nature of the liberty would be. And they left out of the whole discussion the unborn and whether the unborn might have any rights as a human being who could rise to the level of actually being a constitutional person. 
So you see, if we're going to build here, we need to not just be thinking, oh, I need to get busy in my state. And I know some of my listeners are from, from out of state. I need to get busy in my state, make sure our state laws, you know, prohibit abortion or limit abortion as best as we can. And, and you know, those things kind of need to be done. I'm, I'm going to talk about that perhaps in a minute. But, but fundamentally, we still don't know what a person is, whether the unborn are persons. Now, I appreciate this. You could go to work and you could pass a state constitutional amendment prohibiting or saying there's no right to abortion in your state constitution, and that would be great. Tennessee's done that. I led that charge beginning in 2001 when I was still in the Senate, and that's now in our state constitution, and I'm grateful for that. But guess what trumps the state constitutions? The U.S. Constitution and the 14th Amendment trumps the the Constitution. So all that needs to be done is for a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president, or at least a pro-choice Congress and a pro-choice president, to say, well, since the question of who a person is has been left unresolved by the court, we're going to pass a law that said persons, and they'll have to figure out how to word it, but essentially are those who are postnatal. You've been delivered. You've been born. Persons do not include the unborn. And therefore, under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which says Congress shall have the power to enforce the provisions of the Due Process Clause, Congress passes a law that said no state shall have any law that restricts a woman's access to abortion as an infringement of her her right to personal security, her right to life and to liberty. And boom, that's now the 14th Amendment. That would go to the Supreme Court, I presume. But if they're not going to decide who a person is, they'll leave it up to Congress. And all of your work to pass your state constitutional amendment is gone. You see how, if you don't understand what's going on, your work going forward could be futile? I hope you do. Now, this is also kind of interesting about the court. So we need to appreciate not just the issue that we still don't know what it means to be human in our culture, according to our highest tribunal. And and even though they profess to say abortion involves a profound moral question, they leave unanswered the predicate for deciding the morality of abortion, namely, what is a human being. But we also see that the court needs to be reformed still. We can rejoice that the court reversed terribly thought out, terribly worded, terribly contradictory to the common law decisions in Roe and in Casey. But the court, <laughs> the court does something that just amused me to death. And I say that because it's better than saying irritated me to death. But they said, we're going to look at, at whether abortion could be a right that's part of the word liberty under the 14th Amendment that would apply to a woman who, who when she's pregnant, we, we know at least that person's a person. We don't know if the unborn are persons, but at least a pregnant woman is a person, right? And we're going to look to see if abortion might be part of what she had a liberty to do. So they looked at the common law. Now, I have talked over and over and over about the common law and the importance of the common law and the importance of the Ninth Amendment to the common law. So I was delighted to see the court do that. And as I read the first several pages of the opinion, my heart was rising within me that this is the restoration of marriage and family law of of mothers and fathers and husbands and wives because the court said, we're going to look at this word abortion. And then we're going to look at how the common law treated abortion. 
See, my heart rejoices because I know how the common law treated male and female as distinct categories of persons with unique responsibilities and privileges and rights and and marriage gave rise to to additional offices you might say within the family of husband and wife and and the nature of their duties and their responsibilities and obviously on to their children if they had children so I'm, I'm i'm rejoicing i'm rejoicing and they they say but you know you can't just look at the common law over the last little bit but let's look let's look back further in our history and and so they they go back hundreds of years looking at how the common law treated abortion and i'm thinking yay yay because we have forever treated marriage even in polygamous cultures which you know it's not western civilization that, that we were a part of but even polygamous cultures said there always had to be a man and a woman and i'm thinking great if they're going to go back four, five, six hundred years, which they did on abortion, to see how the common law treated that word. Yay, that's a great news for when it comes to what the, the meaning of the word marriage is and the word mother and father and parent. And then they included a paragraph that said, however, abortion is unique. And don't think that anything we've said here returns any authority to the states to decide to have sodomy laws again or to reverse or undermine Obergefell versus Hodges about the understanding of the nature of marriage. Now, my friends, I just have to say to you here, for all that we might like about the court reversing Roe and Casey, the court in essence with that little paragraph said we are still exercising force and will and not law. And the reason I say that is, is because the legal reasoning relative to the law and the transcendent law, the law that preceded the Constitution, that informs the words of the Constitution, it says we're going to apply it here but nowhere else. Now, when your analysis leads to a certain conclusion with regard to other matters, and then you say, but we're just not going to do that, that's force. That's will. That's not law. I don't even know how to describe that perhaps in a, in a vernacular term, but it's it's kind of like, you know, your parents saying, you know, you can go to the school port, sporting events because you're mature and you're responsible and we trust you and then saying, but you can't go to the prom. What? Can you see how that would be confusing to a child who would say, you just said I could go to the high school football game because I'm mature and I'm responsible and you trust me. And then you say, but don't take that to mean you can go to the prom. You, you, your kid would be left thinking, that doesn't make any sense. Mom and dad are just being arbitrary. There's no reasoning, nothing for me to grasp in their analysis of things to understand why the high school football game is, is better for me to attend than my prom. Give me something, mom and dad, right? That's what the court did. It shows that there's still a political entity and needing to be reformed. If in our enactment of state laws, if in our arguments before the court, we are not putting them in a position where we have to make them stop being political and arbitrary, we will find that we'll lose at some critical point. And you see, that, that's exactly what happened over the course of time. Let me give you just a little quick history. There was in the, in, in the 1920s, I think it was, 
uh, for a period of years, the court was coming up with this idea of substantive due process and saying states couldn't have laws on this and couldn't have laws on that, and they were just making up constitutional rights. And the Supreme Court finally repudiated that whole line of cases and said, we're not doing that anymore because we're essentially a roving constitutional convention. We're making up law. We're not exercising judgment. We're exercising force and will, not judgment. And we're going to stop doing that until they decided to start doing it again in 1972. And then with Eisenstein versus Baird, the case I've mentioned, and it's the subsequent case the next year, Roe versus Wade. So in other words, the court said, we're not going to be a political entity, but they were never locked down and prevented from being a political entity again, and they did it. We need to find a way to lock them down. Otherwise, our work may last for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, but then be gone again. may not even last that long. But if we're going to build anything that's enduring, we have to make sure the court cannot be a political organization or its, or its ability to be a political organization is greatly mitigated. And that's why I've talked so much about the Ninth Amendment, because the Ninth Amendment is a provision that rightly interpreted, if states will use it correctly, to force the court to say the entirety of the Constitution, including the 14th Amendment, must be interpreted according to the common law as it existed at the time of the Constitution or the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment. Now you can see why that would be such an anathema to the people I talked about last week. Because the liberals who have adopted the Hegelian understanding of reality that I discussed last week, and go back and listen to it if you haven't heard it, believe that all we have is thesis and antithesis. An an idea or an institution, and then something that comes against that idea or institution, and they clash, and they crash, and they burn, and out of it comes the new thing, so that we're always evolving. And that's why they want to burn down the court and, and call it irredeemable, and why they praise the leaker, because you're helping burn down the institution for the next evolutional change to lead us to a higher state of being and society and culture. So if we, we don't address that, If we don't try to lock them in, our work may prove futile. Now, the founders, I think, did lock them in. But because the Christians lost the understanding of law, we didn't insist on the understanding of law. We allowed it to be stolen out from under our noses. We are in the position we're in today. So if we're going to build into the future, we need to recognize the mistakes of the past and fix them if we're not going to build in a futile way. So I hope in just these few minutes you've seen why knowing what the opinion says is so vital. If you don't read it or you're not able to read it and understand it, you need to get somebody to read it and interpret it for you so that you'll know the worldview in which you're operating and in which you're trying to build so that whatever it is you're trying to build, whether it's to build children and grandchildren who will be able to resist the direction in which things are going, or whether you're trying to enact a statute at the state level or in Congress, you'll know how to do it so that your work will endure and will not be burned up even potentially in your own lifetime. Now next week, we are going to start looking at building. And I hope you will join me 
because we're going to look at some fundamental things that, to be honest, are ignored in evangelical churches today. They are not taught in any systematic way, in any sustained way, uh, in in the pulpits in America. And I don't say that to to, uh, damn pastors. I'm saying it because, one, it's true, but the way we do church does not lend itself to doing that. There was a reason Paul stayed in Ephesus and taught for hours of the day for such a long time, because you're not going to get it in 20 or 30 minutes here and there once a week. It's just the way we do things doesn't lend itself to that. So I hope you'll join me as we continue this series on escaping futility on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.